I think the Europeans are leading the way. They're really just getting on with it. When you speak to the Europeans, they're very much coming at it from a, it's a net zero world. We're back solving what we need. We know that we're in deficit from a renewable energy perspective. When we look at our energy system, we know we will need to be a net importer of energy, either through transmission lines or through hydrogen or ammonia. And so they're sort of getting on with it and solving it. So some of their funding, obviously, they've, they've announced about 8 billion euros in funding, which is big money. But it's not just throwing money at the problem. It's some of the systems they've got in place, which in my mind is pretty smart. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm Hugo Batten, Managing Director of Aurora in Australia. We have Rupert Maloney in today alongside Weiji Mack, a principal in our Australian office and an author of a new Aurora report on the economics of hydrogen in Australia. The focus for today's discussion is going to be hydrogen and the opportunities for the development of a hydrogen industry in Australia. Rupert's got a very diverse background, but a few headlines. He's currently the head of hydrogen at the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, an Australian government-backed green bank. Previously, he was GM of strategy at Ample, an Australian fuels player, as well as a banker at Macquarie and a lawyer at Baker McKenzie. Rupert, welcome to Energy Unplugged. We're absolutely delighted you can join us. Great. Thanks, Hugo. And Matt, good to be with you. To start things off, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation has just released a major and excellent new report on hydrogen economics in Australia. I think it came out in May. Could you just talk us through some of the key takeaways from that report? Yeah, sure. Happy to. Uh, so we we worked with uh, Advisian, which is part of the Wally Group. We worked in this report for over a year, actually, and uh, it's called the Australian Hydrogen Market Study. It, it looked at the cost competitiveness of green hydrogen across 25 different industry sectors, uh, all within an Australian context. So what we were doing is essentially looking at the economic gaps of hydrogen cost, um, delivered cost for those different end-use applications, and then the gap to the alternative technologies, uh, including that full supply chain cost and distribution costs. The analysis highlighted that there's a, a clear pathway for hydrogen to reach competitiveness, certainly starting off in the heavy trucking, the buses and remote power sectors. Uh, with the potential to expand to other transportation sectors in the next 10 years and then expand beyond that to different end-use applications like industrial feedstock um, and, then, and then in time the export industry. It was a, it was a good piece of work uh, to really step through those um, economic gaps across those different end-use applications and highlight some both how far away we are from being economic uh, in those applications and a rough view on, on sequencing. I mean, there are a lot of reports out at the moment, as, as you know, about hydrogen. Are there any parts where you felt like you were pushing against market consensus a little bit? Certainly on electrolyzer capital costs. That was one that we really honed in on because there's certainly some market commentators out there with some pretty aggressive markers. 
uh, for capital costs. And, and so we really tested ourselves. We worked with Advisian, which is part of the Worley Group, to do this report. And um, we leverage some of their insight. They, they do a lot of procurement engagements for clients. Um, but we triangulated market data. Um, we, we looked at that benchmarking. Uh, we also factored in what we're seeing in the market at CESC. We're obviously looking at a lot of different yeah. um, projects at the moment. Um, we also even spoke to people on the ground in China because that was one of the key drivers that the market was saying some very low cost um, electrolyzers were coming from to really test our numbers. And we came out at uh, that, that uh, our forecast for electrolyzer capital cost fully in store was around about that $1.1 to $1.2 million a megawatt. This is assuming industrial scale production. So this isn't small pilot scale projects that we're sort of seeing today. Uh, and then seeing that capital cost come down to about half a million dollars. These, these are all Australian dollars. Uh, per megawatt and and in an accelerated case down to about that $200,000, but that's out at 2050. I suppose before we get into the detail of hydrogen's role in Australia's domestic economy, what's the kind of CEFC house view on hydrogen as an export opportunity for Australia? I mean, clearly Australia's economy for a while has been built on exporting coal and, and gas to Asia. Does the CFC have a view on, on the size of that prize and the feasibility of it based on the work you've done or, or, or is it still too early to stay? There's no doubt that we're, we're seeing a lot of projects and there's no doubt that the economics are really challenging. Uh, if, the, if the economics are challenging in a domestic sense, there's that additional layer of distribution cost to get to those export markets. So we, we look at the numbers and we see very large economic gaps uh, and we... And there's no doubt it's challenging. But I must say my view um, on this question has changed a little bit over the last sort of 12 months or so. Okay. We're starting to see a real sort of pull factor coming from some of those uh, markets that we're talking about. We're talking about Japan or Europe or Korea. Uh, and these are markets which are really embracing net zero and they're really mapping out their energy systems and they really do see a role for hydrogen. So they're really pulling, they're trying to build out these from their perspective, an imported supply chain. The other one yep. that we're starting to see a lot more of is on the um, on the pricing side is a lot more thought about and discussion about a potential green premium here uh, mm. or even, even potentially a shadow carbon price, if you can put it that way, because you've got uh, you've got a lot of companies, all companies in these markets globally are factor factoring in internal carbon prices, even if there's not an ex a, a mandated uh, carbon price in those markets. Uh, we're seeing financial markets as well. Um, with allocation of capital in financial markets, you're getting that sort of shadow carbon price by um, increasing the cost of capital for carbon intensive industries and reducing the cost of capital for, for green industries. Uh, and then the other one is obviously there's starting this discussion about border adjustments um, mechanisms and, and those factors are starting to come together um, to form a level of potential green premium. So as I said, the economics are really difficult, no doubt about that, but we're starting to see either a pull factor from these markets or a, a pseudo sort of green premium being discussed um to enable some of these these projects get closer 
that, that makes total sense. But when you talk about the economic gap, I presume it is the kind of transport costs. And I'm certainly not a chemical engineer, but but the processes around uh, shipping and then delivering hydrogen in, into Asia, I, I hear are just quite high. It's still getting worked through uh, yeah. because we're talking about some of these markets, certainly in liquid hydrogen um, is still getting worked through what those costs will, will be. Obviously, ammonia is a derivative, so green ammonia, that is a tradable market today, so those costs can get factored in, uh, but it, it is still getting worked through what, what that eventuates to. And, and then the kind of prioritisation of domestic opportunities in Australia, I think there have been a kind of number of helpful frameworks that, that we've seen. How's the CEFC thinking about that prioritization. You, you talked about a few of them there in terms of heavy vehicles and, and those kind of things. Um, but but how do you think through which business models and, and sources of demand will win long-term? As with all investments that the CFC looks at, uh, we, we need to um, make a commercial return or make a return for investments that we make. We're not a grant-giving organisation. So we will ultimately be guided by risks and returns. Uh, so we're, we're agnostic on end-use applications. It's really uh, which projects can get closer to having a, a commercial return um, to enable CEFC investment. Uh, we're genuinely open-minded. The way I'm seeing it at the moment is that there's potentially role for multiple end-use applications and financing of multiple end-use applications. You've got the ones that I was talking about earlier, which are probably closest to being economic. So um, displacement of petroleum products, uh, where we can see that pathway. But then you've got, um, but they've got pretty complex supply chains and you've got challenges of vehicle availability, uh, which really isn't there today. Then on the other side, you've got some end use applications, which have pretty deep demand pools, which are there today. Gas blending is, is a good example of that, or, or transitioning ammonia from grey hydrogen to green hydrogen. Um, but the, the economics are really challenging in those end-use applications because you're taking on natural gas and um, from a thermal value, so hydrogen really up against natural gas. So the economics are more challenging there, but the demand is there today. So I, I think you'll see a bit of both um, or all those sort of end-use applications, which is, which is a good thing. Uh, and so at CEFC, we'll get driven by those economics and the commerciality. Well, just talking then about commercial returns, it, it generated some headlines here in Australia, but the CEFC made their first major hydrogen investment a little while ago in Hisata. I think I've got that name right, which is an yes. advanced electrolyzer technology coming out of the University of Wollongong. I mean, it's always great to see Aussie unis commercializing their research because out of outside of you know biomedical research, Australians always haven't done that as, as well as, as overseas. But could you tell, tell us a little bit about that company and, and what they're doing? Uh, yes, happy to. So that's come out of our um, the CFC's Clean Energy Innovation Fund. That's a, an allocation of capital. It's about $200 million. It's essentially a, a venture capital fund. It's an early stage investment fund. Uh, so we look to um, support sort of new hydrogen technologies out of that fund. Uh, this investment, Hasata, is a, it's a new type of electrolyzer technology um, that has the potential to significantly improve the efficiency of hydrogen production process. It's, it's really exciting. It's, it's potential step change in efficiencies 
So with current PAM or alkaline electrolyzers being around that 60 to 70% efficiency, this has a potential to really step change that up closer to that sort of 90, 95% efficiency, potentially. It's early stage and it needs to be commercialized. Uh, and potentially there's some other benefits with very low cost, um, capital costs with this technology as well. It's a good example of what's, what's going to be required across the hydrogen supply chain. We will need new technologies to really bring down these costs and drive up efficiencies. So we'll look to support technologies like this uh, across that supply chain. And we're seeing a number of opportunities across the supply chain coming out of those Australian research and R&D facilities and universities. On that note, who do you see as the potential long-term winners in the hydrogen economy? And I know it's early. Is it going to be players like Hasada who can build a technology mode? We've seen some unconventional larger players enter in Australia. Squadron Energy, which is at least partly owned by Fortescue, one of the big iron ore players here in Australia as an example. But there's clearly just a, a lot of activity. Do you have a view yet on where the long-term winners will emerge and what will be their source of sustainable competitive advantage in the hydrogen economy? I think that there'll be a number of winners across that whole supply chain. Uh, it'll be those players that really solve the commercial barriers that we're sort of up against. It would, no doubt technical suppliers, so um, new businesses, new technologies that are developed which solve some of those challenges and bring down either delivery cost or, or supply chain cost. Uh, it, project developers that bring something unique to the table. Uh, if, if there's projects in the early days where they're really competing with a higher cost alternative, uh, I, I think they'll be good examples. The, the squadron energy and, and going head on with natural gas, uh, I, I think is difficult. Uh, so squadron and energy Australia, uh, they, they're obviously got open cycle gas turbines. And these are new, newly developed turbines that are hydrogen ready or hydrogen capable. And my understanding is that they're really thinking about a blend of gas and hydrogen through those turbines. The challenge we, you get is that you're going head on from a thermal value. So uh, obviously natural gas is, is relatively cheap and $10, ten a gigajoule natural gas, if that's what you're assuming through those turbines, you need to have hydrogen down at, at call it a dollar twenty a kilogram yeah. for uh, hydrogen's um, high heat value when it's combusted, uh, which, is, which is really challenging. Our report said that you're not going to get to those prices uh, anytime in the next sort of 20 years at least. Not to say that our report's right. It, we'll, we'll see those technology cost curves come down, uh, but, but there's no doubt that's challenging. And that's why, why potentially petroleum products, um, you've got a higher bar that you're competing against. Initially, when we were discussing topics for this interview, I, I don't think the European energy crisis had blown up in, in quite the way it has since. Do you think the volatility we're seeing in European energy markets you know, driven at least in part by volatility in gas markets and some of the geopolitics around that will change the politics of hydrogen. I mean, given those price deltas, it's it's still challenging. But but do you see any discussion about that emerging yet? Or again, is, is it too early to say, and we'll have to see how this current kind of European energy crisis plays out? It's a little early because we're talking about 
and with all hydrogen pro projects, you're obviously building a long-term asset. So you're talking about a 20 to 30-year capital uh, tenure for your capital cost there. Uh, so it's sort of through the cycles. But there's no doubt that if you look at it on the other side, there's no doubt that some hydrogen projects are really that there is a true benefit for the stability of price and that you're yeah. not actually, you could actually do an offtake, a long-term offtake. And some of these projects are looking at it a 20 year offtake where you have a very certain price of energy and, and it's not um, it's not pegged to oil price or global gas prices in that sense. So there's a lot more certainty on the other side, which is a real benefit for hydrogen because it's essentially you can be very quite certain on, on your renewable energy costs over that long yeah. period of time. You know your capital costs up front, most of them are upfront costs. Uh, so you can actually price long-term pretty stable. When you do look overseas, are there any countries that you see doing a particularly good job of stimulating hydrogen supply and demand in their economies? I mean, I know the Europeans, particularly the Germans, from what I've seen, seem to be throwing a lot of money at hydrogen. And countries like Morocco are certainly talking about the benefits of their very cheap green electricity and their proximity to those European demand centres. Is there anyone you look at and say they've got the policy configurations pretty, pretty right? Oh, I think I think you probably touched upon it there. I think the Europeans have uh, are leading the way. They they're really just getting on with it. Uh, yeah. When you speak to the Europeans, they they're very much coming at it from a it's a net zero world. We're we're back solving what we need. We know that we're in deficit from a renewable energy perspective. When we look at our energy system, we know we will need to be a net importer of energy either through transmission lines or or through hydrogen or ammonia. Uh, and and so they're sort of getting on with it and solving it. So some of their funding, obviously, they've they've announced about eight billion euros in funding, which is big money. Uh, but it's not just throwing money at the problem. It's some some of the systems they've got in place, which, in my mind, is pretty smart. Um, I, I'm not sure if you've heard of this H2 Global scheme, which is very topical here in Australia because a number of the Australian hydrogen export projects are targeting this scheme. But it's about 900 or a billion euros in funding, uh, which is essentially a subsidised reverse auction for hydrogen imports to improve that price competitiveness because there is that gap. So it's a pretty interesting model because it's it's this dual dual tender where they take bids from a sort of a hydrogen purchase agreement and a hydrogen supply side, and then there's going to be a gap, and then they use a CFD style subsidy to to plug that gap over time. It's essentially bringing projects forward um, because the challenge with all these projects are, do you go early at a, and lock in a higher price because you, there's a higher capital cost today or do you wait for others to do that drive down price and coming later? But these CFD style uh, subsidies enables that gap to be uh, filled over time and it declines over time. So they're smart policy mechanisms. Uh, and I know that, that here in Australia, we're, we're pretty close to it on the Australian side and, and a lot's happening at a government level, working quite closely with the Germans on it. Mac, I might bring you in here because yeah. you were certainly pretty heavily involved with Aurora's work on hydrogen in Europe. Is there yeah. anything you'd add to Rupert's comments there about how the Europeans are designing their markets around hydrogen and, and anyone you see doing it particularly well? 
Yeah, no, I, I, I can't fully agree with Rupert here. There's, there's a lot of, I think it's a three-factor reason why, why kind of Europe is seeing such a huge influx in interest in, in hydrogen. And, you know, the first one which Rupert touched on was this really clear target, both for 2030 emissions target and a 2050 net zero target that almost all European nations have signed up towards. And then the kind of back solving. But what's quite interesting there as well is with many of these countries like Germany or France, which is you know pushing really hard on the hydrogen front, they had traditional kind of base load nuclear power that has been giving them a really good sense of base load low carbon um, generation. But they're starting to move a little bit away from nuclear, and that comes the question of you know what's next. Um, for the power sector in terms of decarbonizing, if renewables are only 90 to 95% of the answer, what's that remaining 5 to 10% of the answer there? Um, there are also many other sectors um, similar to Australia where you, you, know, you just can't undergo um, decarbonization without some form of new technologies and, and hydrogen is one of those key um, sources of fuel. For, for things like industries, for example. And, and industry is the second largest in terms of GDP for Europe. And that was one of the key reasons as well, where you know, you're seeing this need to decarbonize sectors, which are a lot harder to decarbonize and you want to get to this net zero target. And I guess the last point is just government support. And that comes in terms of direct funding. I think when we worked out the total amount of funding that was available, it was, I think somewhere closer to 30, 40, billion euros across Europe that's available for funding new hydrogen projects that's split across both um, green hydrogen as well as blue hydrogen projects such as you know um, SMRs and, and CCS and uh, on top of that indirect support as well so there are guarantees of origins which are pretty much similar to LGCs in Australia but instead of providing them to renewables you're providing them to hydrogen facilities and um, a very strong carbon price as well, which provides a clear market-based signal um, for industries to undergo decarbonization. So pretty much similar to what Rupert said, but perhaps maybe one or two more elaborations on some of this fronts. Returning to Australia, Mac, and, and maybe one for you, the, the federal government's announced a $2 to Aussie dollar yeah. per kilo hydrogen target by 2030. Um, mm. I, I know we've just released a report on this topic what are some of the key factors that will determine this if you could just kind of break yeah. them out and and what kind of combinations of factors i suppose can get us to that target by by 2030 in that recent report we looked at many different business models so we looked at kind of off-grid electrolysis um particularly kind of um, co-locating with um, renewables on-site. We also look at on-grid electrolyzers. So that's kind of drawing power from the system itself. And then we will, when we looked across the different business models, we found that an island model. So if you have an electrolyzer that's not connected to the power grid, um, but you have quite a bit of on-site renewables, um, does yield the lowest levelized cost of hydrogen by 2030. Um, and to do that, um, you need to significantly oversize the amount of renewables that you have on site relative to electrolysis. So I think when we looked at the economics, we're looking at something close to two renewable assets for every one unit of electrolyzer. Um, that got us to you know, an LCOH or levelized cost of hydrogen of roughly $4.50 per kilogram of H2, which is still quite a lot more than the Australian's target of $2, um, two Australian dollars per kilogram of H2. Now, um, it is possible to get there. Um, in order to get there, we need to assume quite 
well, a much more aggressive um, capex and other technological improvements. So capex must decline by almost 50%. You then need to see significant decreases in uh, fixed operating costs of electrolyzers as well as the renewable capex. Um, however, quite interestingly, beyond technological improvements, we found that a key factor that would drive down costs is actually the weighted average cost of capital. So in that initial model that we ran, um, the $4.50 number that I quoted was based off a weighted average cost of capital of roughly 9%. If we lowered that to roughly 4 to 5%, we could actually see the LCOH of hydrogen, green hydrogen, getting down to roughly $2 per kilogram, $2.50 to be exact. So we can see that you know, without any technological improvements, if um, you could reduce this kind of weighted average cost of capital, you could actually get to that $2 um, quite realistically. And, and to reduce that weighted average cost of capital, um, government funding or support would be quite important. That kind of reduces the risk on the project, which then fits into the kind of wax of the project itself. Rupert, is there anything you'd like to, to pick up out of that? I, I know you, you and the, the team at Invision and, and the CEFC did similar analysis. Do, do you think, you know, particularly the lower electrolyzer capex, which you touched on, but then the, the cost of capital reductions are going to be the keys to unlock lower LCOHs? Is there anything else you'd point to? Yeah, I think it's all the levers. I think every lever needs to be pulled. No doubt cost of capital has a role. Uh, and we're seeing certainly from a CEFC perspective, we're, we're there to help cost of capital. And there's lots of uh, interest from other funders as well. Uh, yep. But I think it's, um, I think renewable, I think the model, the model, the main model that we're seeing is sort of a likely grid connected, but a, um, a long-term PPA um, uh, arrangement. And we're seeing some pretty aggressive pricing in the market uh, to really try and get up to that load factor of your electrolyzer around that sort of 60 or 70% is the optimum yep. sort of load factor you need to target. Uh, but but buy a PPA 100% green in a in a location which is pretty close, uh, and then you're seeing some interesting stuff. So for example, I'm not sure if you caught when New South Wales came out with their hydrogen strategy. They're talking about um, offering sort of a 90% discount on network charges, um, which which seems really smart uh, because you're really looking to utilise spare capacity in the grid uh, infrastructure network and really encourage these hydrogen projects to be located in areas where there's spare capacity uh, and, and pass on those discounts to those projects, uh, which, which seems really smart because, again, that's another lever. It's not just the renewable energy costs. It's obviously network charges are a, a big element of that if it's grid connected. Uh, and then we'll see capital costs come down. There's no doubt about that. Uh, we only have to look back at solar and wind from 10 years ago and, and the numbers were, were scary and, and we, we very much got there. So I have faith with sort of the scaling up of the supply chain from an electrolyzer production perspective uh, that there'll be some, some good learning curves coming off that uh, and, and we'll likely exceed expectations as I said up front. There's some pretty aggressive markers out there in the market. And, and some of those markers are coming from the OEMs themselves. So the large global electrolyzer manufacturers are out there with some very aggressive pricing that they, they think they can get to in the next five years or so. So you factor in some of those that pricing 
renewable energy is obviously a key component that needs to continue to come down. Capital market supporting, I can see that. Uh, and then uh, the right policy mechanisms in place, which, which we can certainly see as well. And, and you can see that pathway. Uh, the debate is when, uh, and, and, and I, I think that's a secondary sort of consideration. Uh, it's just getting that, that price coming down, so supply chain costs coming down, uh, and then potentially some some premiumization on the from a green product perspective on the price side, uh, and then you get more pro, uh, more projects happening. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And as you touched on New South Wales there briefly, they do seem to be doing a very good job of thinking about hydrogen transmission generation and security of supply slash capacity in an internally consistent way. So they're, they're mapping out integrated policies. Now, now critics might might say it's a, a slight return to kind of command and control of electricity markets, but it, it, it certainly does seem to be kind of well integrated and they're leveraging, I think, some of the wholesale price benefits they're going to create through the renewable CFD auctions they've run into hydrogen deployment which which seems smart i completely agree our study looked at this as well is well where are you going to locate hydrogen production versus demand centers and it's a key consideration obviously the lowest cost renewable energy is is not in locations next to port locations or demand centers so uh, do you produce at those renewable energy zones um, and benefit from that lower cost renewable energy, or do you, or do you build more transmission lines and and move electrons down to producing closer to those demand centres? Uh, and and ultimately, what we need is an efficient system to bring down costs. And so the New South Wales policies really factor some of that in to make sure that those that hydrogen production is located uh, in the most optimum uh, locations from a full supply chain cost perspective. Uh, so that, that's important. Uh, and then we will look at, um, yeah, uh, there, there's other factors and other, uh, other levers that will go through from a policy perspective. Obviously, at the federal uh, government level, there's a hydro, hydrogen hubs uh, funding program underway at the moment which is really about aggregating some of these, um, these costs, these capital costs that will be required from an infrastructure perspective uh, and having government support in the early days. Uh, so that, that's another important program that's underway at the moment. Mac, I might bring you in on that one again. If we think about at least some of the hydrogen uh, supply facilities being connected into the NAM, yeah. what impacts does our modelling say that will have? And I suppose we should give a little bit of context to some of our listeners who are based in Europe and and the US. As I think I said earlier in the podcast, we are seeing low prices in Australia's East Coast electricity market. And particularly in the middle of the day, prices at the moment are, are very often negative. And that's in part driven by the boom in rooftop solar, where we're adding almost three gigawatts a year. But there are grid scale wind and wind and solar coming in, but it's becoming a very duck curvy market to use use a, a term that's being thrown around a lot in Australia at the moment. How does demand for hydrogen production fit into that? Yeah, 
that's a, that's a really good question. I think, you know, we, we have to first assume that this is connected to the grid and at least, I mean, our EMOS forecast scenarios, they do expect, you know, anywhere between 10 to 120 terawatts of grid connected hydrogen. Um, and then for context, the kind of total grid demand at that point, 2050, it's, it's roughly 250 terawatt hours. So, so it's quite a bit of hydrogen that could be added to the grid. In terms of, you know, how it affects the grid economics, we do see, um, hydrogen production to be focused predominantly in the middle of the day, where there's a lot of solar production and, and wholesale electricity prices are low. So that's the kind of the most ideal time to be pro producing hydrogen um, to kind of capitalize on the cheap electricity cost. And I think the clear winners here would be renewables. Um, and, and both wind and solar would benefit from this, but particularly solar assets because um, you know, without hydrogen, as you get more and more rooftop solar coming into the market, this kind of middle of the day prices would be quite low and you could get um, quite a low capture price, um, which is a DWA price as well, um, and also high levels of economic curtailment. And what hydrogen does is that it starts to soak up this excess energy in the middle of the day. So it gives an uplift to both the DWA price of solar assets um, and renewable assets in general as well as reducing the amount of economic curtailment. So even with a modest amount of hydrogen, so somewhere like 20 terawatt hours of hydrogen, which is what we modeled in the system by 2050, that's less than 10% of the total um, grid connected power demand. We do see improvements in gross margins of renewable assets of anywhere between five to 10%. So it, it does provide quite a huge benefit for renewables connecting into the grid. Rupert, before we go, I do want to get one question in about your career prior to the CEFC and the current focus on hydrogen. Previously, you were at Ampol, which, as I said in the intro, is an Australian fuels player. So um, my understanding is they own an oil refinery. They own a, a network of refueling stations around the country. But they've been pretty active in the last year or two, looking at electricity generation assets, and and uh, they've been certainly certainly talking about EV charging infrastructure. What kind of strategic op options are available to to Ampol? How do you think they're thinking around the the different options available to them at, at the moment? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one, uh, and it's a it's a similar sort of consideration. A lot of these large uh, petroleum sort of downstream businesses are going through that they're certainly looking at it at expanding their that they're looking at becoming a broader energy player so not just playing in transport fuels as they traditionally played in and and expanding to stationary energy uh, but at the same time obviously a lot of the big gentailers are, are also looking to expand their reaches as well uh, Electric charging, EV charging is a good example of that. They're certainly looking to offer that at their sites and they see themselves having a strategic advantage doing that, obviously with the site locations. However, it's a difficult one and, and we've seen this in Europe with BP and Shell and Total, um, certainly purchasing EV charging businesses. The business case is really difficult for EV charging for these sorts of businesses because the vast majority of charging um, will be done at home or at work uh, and, and you don't need that ultra fast charging for most use cases. It's sort of in the order of 80 to 90% of charging will be done overnight at home if you've got access to sort of 
charging infrastructure just at home through trickle charging, sorry. Um, So therefore putting ultra fast charging in service stations, high capital costs, which aren't being used very often and they are a lower margin uh, than you'll get off fuel sales is a difficult one, certainly in the early days of EVs. Uh, As EVs expand, potentially the, the business case improves but again, lots of capital costs up front. Uh, so from a return on capital perspective, it's a real challenge. So these, these businesses are working that through um, and, and they're trying to sort of expand their, their reach uh, into other, other forms of energy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then just a final question to wrap it up. Uh, and, and I often ask for these recommendations at, at the end of these podcasts. Rupert, who do you read or listen to in the energy kind of slash decarbonisation space that you think's always good and relevant to the private sector? Is is there anyone that springs to mind? Oh, there's obviously plenty of uh, news flow when it comes to hydrogen. Uh, it's a daily occurrence at the moment. Uh, but beyond that... Uh, there's an Australian uh, economist uh, and author called Ross Garno. Um, some of his his books, in particular, one that I read about six months ago called Superpower, I believe, uh, is an interesting read because Ross Garno was one of the early comers to sort of the carbon revolution, and he he was behind a lot of the policy in the early days here in Australia. Uh, and then this this more recent book really incorporates the role that uh, renewable energy or clean energy can have from an export perspective, and certainly where the role that hydrogen plays. It's an interesting perspective because it's it really says that the energy markets will be turned on their head. There's an opportunity, certainly from an Australian perspective, to not just export iron ore or coal for it to be processed in overseas markets, but potentially use that renewable energy, that clean energy here in Australia to export value-added products like green steel or green aluminium um, or others. And and there's been a lot of discussion about how realistic that is, uh, certainly with Andrew Forrest out there talking a lot about green steel and its role. Uh, but Ross Garno um, takes it from the very beginning and, and steps it through. I think he does a pretty good job at it and he brings a, an interesting perspective. Well, on that note, Rupert, thank you enormously for your time. We've covered a huge amount in 40 minutes and it's been a great discussion. Thank you also to Mac. We're very appreciative. Thanks a lot, Hugo Mac. Thanks, Hugo. Thanks, Rupert. That was Hugo Batten, Managing Director of Aurora in Australia, talking to Rupert Maloney, Head of Hydrogen at the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, and Weiji Mack, Principal in Aurora's Australia office. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.